What's new in adaptive physical education? Uh, today I have the honor and privilege to share with you a keynote lecture from Dr. Justin Hagel from Old Dominion University. He and my university was um, was privileged enough to have him come and speak to our entire university, and then I think this one is geared towards the College of Education at the University of Northern Iowa, and it was really awesome. It's on inclusion and his research in inclusion. And he and it was really great because we were able to highlight adaptive physical education within the broader realm of education, and I don't think that happens enough. So with that, uh, I'm going to let the associate dean, Stephanie Schmitz, take it away and introduce Dr. Hagel, and please enjoy. So welcome, everyone, to the Carton Mellichamp Lecture Series. Um, this is our keynote. Um, we are so excited to have Justin Hagel with us. Um, today, or actually he's been here already for a student session and for our keynote, and then tonight he's at our uh, family and community session, our family, faculty and community session. We've seen like a family, right? Um, so just to give a brief introduction for those who do not know Justin, I know he knows some people here online, but he is an associate professor in the Department of Human Movement Sciences at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. His focus is on adapted physical education with a primary interest in ex examining how individuals with disabilities, specifically those with visual impairments, experience participation in physical activity. He has produced over 80 scholarship articles and five book chapters and presented at the local, state, national, and international levels. Um, he earned his PhD in adapted physical education from the Ohio State University. As a Michigan um, fan, that pains me just a little bit. Um, everybody, I'm going to admit Scott here. Um, among other honors, he received the G. Lawrence Rarick Research Award from the National Consortium for Physical Education for Individuals with Disabilities in 2020, and was selected as the Research Fellow with the Research Council of the Society of Health and Physical Educators, or SHAPE, in 2017. He is here to talk to us about questioning the inclusiveness of education, and I'm so excited you are here, Justin, and I'm going to turn it over to you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stephanie. We've been planning this since um, right before Thanksgiving of 2019. So it's been um, been quite the, the trek with, with making this work. I appreciate the, the invite and then the re-invite after COVID. Um, and so I'm going to go ahead and share my screen so I can start um, talking about the things that I'm here to talk about today. Um, and I think I've already messed up the screen share. So hold on one second. Let me try this again. There we go. All right. So um, like Stephanie said, I'm joining you from Old Dominion University and ODU is in Norfolk, Virginia, which is the southeast side of Virginia. Um, and so I'm not too far away, about four hours and 50 minutes from you all. Um, and I'm going to try to go through three different related topics today um, as part of the presentation. The first thing I'd like to do is discuss the concept and idea and term inclusion. Um, then I'd like to talk to you about the research we've been doing on embodied experiences and inclusion. Um, and then finally discuss some implications of this research. Um, and so that I suppose the most important thing with this presentation is first to talk about what inclusion is. And this picture is a photo of me when I put the suit on earlier today, um, questioning and wondering to myself, what is this idea of inclusion, right? So inclusion is a really popular word and um, it, it has a lot of implications for the way in which we educate kids, but the word is really hard to define. And so, for, for what I'm gonna share with you today are a lot of personal reflections about the word inclusion and the concept of inclusion. And these are thoughts that are in progress. And so I don't think that um, these are final thoughts on inclusion. And in fact, I, I constructed this presentation for the first time a year ago when I was planning to come out to Iowa and visit you all. 
And then in reconstructing it this year, a lot of things have changed in my thinking about inclusion. And I think that's a really important thing that we continue to reconstruct and reconstruct our understanding of these different educational philosophies and principles. Um, and so my thinking on inclusion and questioning of inclusion really started with conversations with my wife, who is a special educator, about what inclusion is. And so there was a point where she was an inclusion teacher. And I was mentioning this to the students earlier this morning. And she would take kids from an inclusion classroom and she would teach them in another classroom called an inclusion room. So they would leave their integrated class where they were with peers without disabilities and they would move to another classroom called the inclusion classroom in her district where she, the inclusion teacher would teach them and then bring them back to their integrated class. Um, and, and this brought up a lot of different questions for me uh, in trying to understand what this word inclusion really meant because it seemed inherently incongruent with what we believe inclusion to be. And so even when I'm looking around for definitions of inclusion, we really see the proliferation of a bunch of different catchy ways to describe inclusion. And so something like this image, which I think I've seen in a dozen or so different presentations, it tries to provide differences between exclusion and segregation and integration and inclusion. But when I look at this, the only thing I really see and understand is that there's little stars around circles and in inclusion. Um, and so I think that having more nuance to our understanding of inclusion is really important. And so these are reiterating some of the, the ideas that I said already in the first few slides, which, which is glo globally inclusion has become a really influential trend in educational context over the last 30 years. However, the term inclusion often has mixed and ambiguous meaning and is commonly misused by educators, scholars, administrators alike. And so initially when I constructed this, um, this presentation, I had, um, I had copy and pasted the definition of inclusion from about 40 different research manuscripts and started to compare them. Um, but I decided to take that out because I thought perhaps I would just muddy the water a bit. Um, but what I do wanna share is that we took on the task of attempting to define the word inclusion in one of the first papers that we wrote about this idea. Um, and so we're going to revisit this paper when I talk more about the research we've been doing later. But the important aspect here is how we've defined the word inclusion. And so often these two terms, integration and inclusion, are used interchangeably, both in common vernacular, but also in the research literature. Um, however, we wanted to provide a conceptual distinction between these two. And so the way we've defined integration is as a placement. And so anytime children with and without disabilities are in the same physical space or context, we refer to that space as an integrated space. Inclusion, on the other hand, is a educational philosophy that can promote successful learning and engagement for all students. This language allows us to now problematize whether integrated classes are inclusive. So, or said another way, whether kids with disabilities or all children, not just kids with disabilities, experience feelings associated with inclusion within integrated settings. And so the, we were inspired by the work of Steinbeck and Steinbeck in the mid nineties when it came to um, how we further define the hallmarks of inclusion. And so according to Steinbeck and Steinbeck, the appropriate application of inclusion as an educational philosophy is understood as a subjective experience, which is associated with individual interpretations, feelings, beliefs, and perceptions. And so the feeling of being included is a subjective experience associated with a sense of belonging, feeling accepted, and feeling valued. And so that end, that um, end of the sentence, the sense of belonging, feeling accepted, and feeling valued is really where we center a lot of our work here. So we don't talk about people being included because they are in a physical space with other children. We say people feel included and it's an individualized subjective experience that's associated with a sense of belonging, feeling accepted and feeling valued. And so this definition has a number of different implications. And one is that placing children with and without disabilities in the same setting does not mean that they are included. That is, although students with disabilities are positioned in the same space as those without disabilities, they may experience phenomenon and, and feelings within that space differently. And I think this is something that we need to accept as practitioners and also as, um, as researchers in that 
just because two people are in the same space and they are experiencing the same activity, they could experience those activities quite differently. Um, in fact, a lot of scholars are questioning whether practice is intended to promote inclusion, such as putting kids with and without disabilities in the same location, can create forms of marginalization or exclusion. And so educators may engender some practices, such as treating different educational contexts as dumping grounds where people with and without disabilities are placed in the same setting without any fundamental changes to that setting, um, may be well-intentioned, but have the potential the potential to unintentionally exclude those trying to be included. And so there's a number of other implications for this um, definition of inclusion. So inclusion as a subjective experience means that in order to understand if a child or a person is included, um, one must talk to or pursue the perspective of the person trying to be included. And so Inclusion can't be reduced to a set of strategies or inspection criteria that could be observed superficially. I can't look at a class and tell you whether or not kids feel included within that class. Even when students are smiling, there's a lot of different reasons why a student might smile, right? So people may smile for different cultural reasons. Students might smile because they believe that's the, um, that's the socially appropriate behavior or socially appropriate reaction to a stimulus. Um, but smiling doesn't necessarily mean happiness, it doesn't mean valued, it doesn't mean belonging, it doesn't mean acceptance. Um, so these two implications essentially state that in order for us to understand if somebody is included, we have to talk to that somebody. Since inclusion is conceptualized as a subjective experience, that means inclusion can also occur in a number of different settings. And so students can feel included in various settings, whether those are integrated settings or self-contained settings, whether those are sport camps, whether those are art classes, whether they are one-to-one -one settings. It, when inclusion is, a, is conceptualized as subjective experiences, ex, subjective experience associated with acceptance, belonging, and value, you can take those constructs and measure them or evaluate them or examine them in a variety of different settings. And we're gonna talk more about that when we get toward the end of the research uh, that we're gonna go over, um, because a good deal of it is now coming out in uh, self-contained schools or schools for the blind. And the last piece is that inclusion is temporal. So one, uh, one might feel included during one specific section of a class or a session or a, a presentation, um, whereas in other sessions or other parts of the, the, the uh, class or context, they may not feel included. One may bounce in and out of feeling included, feeling valued, feeling um, like they belong, depending on the time in which they're in the place. Inclusion may be thriving one moment and then disrupted the next moment. And so constant conversation and constant engagement with people is necessary to understand whether a small portion of a lesson elicited feelings of inclusion, or if that feeling of inclusion bounced in and out um, throughout the lesson. And so I wanna to talk to you all about some of the research we've been doing on embodied experiences and inclusion. And so um, I can't speak to all educational contexts. I work specifically within one educational context, which is in uh, physical education or physical activity or adapted physical activity or education. However, I think that the methodologies that we've adopted and, and the, uh, the conceptual framework that we use can be applied to many different contexts. And personally, I have a lot of interest in expanding outside of just the physical education space to other educational spaces, including higher education, to see, um, to examine whether physical education is unique in what we're finding or if other contexts are would elicit similar experiences. And so right now we're here at ODU, we're working in three different uh, somewhat related areas as far as research is concerned. Um, we do a lot of work looking at determinants of different health behaviors, including physical activity, sleep, screen time, um, et cetera. Um, and we also do a good deal of work leveraging national data sets to look at national trends in those uh, health behaviors or in obesity um, or bullying as well. Um, but really the passion that I have in research lies in 
amplifying the voices of persons with disabilities and understanding subjective and embodied experiences in various settings. And so as a reminder, since the application of inclusion as an educational philosophy is understood as a subjective experience, it's logical and important to su suggest that one must examine these experiences of those being included uh, from their own pers uh, perspective. Um, and so the research that we use has largely focused on individuals with disabilities and mostly those with visual impairments. However, this is broadening. Um, it seems like on a daily basis, our, our uh, cohort of participants has broadened. Um, and I'll talk a bit about that as well. Um, and again, we're, we're, we're looking across a number of different contexts and we're consistently looking for um, um, collaborators who work in a variety of different contexts as well. Um, and so I'm gonna you know, throw a pitch out there to those at UNI if you're looking at uh, different contexts and wanna explore some of the things we've explored. That's definitely something I'd be, I'd be thrilled to talk about and perhaps that's something that would be appropriate for the session tomorrow which is supposed to be a more intimate conversation about research. And so I'm gonna start with the first paper that we, that we did um, that looked at the embodied experiences of persons with visual impairments. And, and a lot of the studies that we've done have talked specifically to adults. And the reason we talk to adults is so that they can reflect back on the feelings that they experienced, to, experienced in schools as kids, but have a conceptual gap between when they were in schools and as an adult. So they feel comfortable telling us about things that might be frustrating or uncomfortable. Um, we found over the years now that looking from the perspective of children is a lot more challenging because children are less willing to provide um, more intimate information and more information about frustrating experiences, largely because of the hierarchy that they see with researcher or teacher when we have teacher collaborators and themselves as students. And so this was the first probe that we, uh, we did into the experiences of persons with visual impairments in integrated PE classes. And what we found was surprising at the time, which was that they experienced feelings of frustration and inadequacy because, because they were left out or pushed out of activities fairly often. Um, they had negative feelings about being viewed as unable, and that was both from their peers as well as from um, their teachers. And they felt like they were marginalized by their peers. And so in this, in this slide, I added one of the quotes, and this is one of the quotes that helped inspire us to continue to drive this research forward. And this person said, I knew I was different from the other kids at an early age. There was a lot I couldn't do, and I couldn't participate in, and the divide seemed bigger in PE than anywhere else. And I think that was a really bad thing because I think it defined me for much of my life as not a physically active person. And so when we first saw this quote, we thought, we thought this became a more important topic to us because it was so clear that there was an incongruence between the goals and philosophy within physical education and what experiences these particular people were having. And so we followed up with this study, um, with a study which I worked on with one of my former master's students where we talked to adults with visual impairments and asked them to reflect back on the impact that PE had when they were youth um, on their adult physical activity, which again is one of those um, important outcomes of PE that's stated in our uh, national standards and such. And so what we found was that the participants viewed PE as a nuisance rather than an opportunity that had very little lifelong impact or impact on their lifelong physical activity. So again, we're seeing that um, the goal of PE being uh, influence lifelong physical activities not being met for these kids or these individuals. Um, and so let's roll to the next study. This was the third, the third in the line of basic studies that we did to start understanding um, like a kind of a baseline understanding of what experiences were like. We also wanted to talk to persons who went to schools for the blind um, as a different context. And so a few really interesting things that happened with this particular study, one of which was that there was a hierarchy of bullying that was present in physical education in residential schools for the blind that was based on ability and disability. And to me, that's interesting because the same hierarchy exists in integrated classes where kids that are viewed as disabled 
tend to be bullied by those who are more able or not disabled. Well, that same hierarchy exists in schools for the blind. And sometimes with these participants, when they went from integrated schools to schools for the blind, they went up the social hierarchy because they were no longer the kid that was viewed as disabled, but rather when they were in the school for the blind, they may have had less significant impairments than other students. And so then they were on the top of the social hierarchy and they were bullying other kids below them. They also viewed, the, another interesting finding from this study was that the participants viewed their experiences in the residential school for the blind to be more inclusive than their experiences in integrated settings. And so they experience a sense of belonging, a sense of value, and a sense of acceptance or feeling accepted more so in this setting than they did in the prior integrated settings that a lot of them were in. And this is what inspired us to start thinking about inclusion as being available to students outside of integrated spaces, not just it, with, uh, with peers without disabilities. So a final study in this baseline time where we're still exploring experiences, general experiences, we talked to some athletes with visual impairment. So we went out and we talked to uh, four, para, or four Paralympic goalball players because we thought to ourselves, perhaps it's unathletic people in physical integrated physical education with visual impairments who are having challenging experiences. Perhaps if they had, uh, if they were elite athletes or if they were athletic in general, then they'd have more positive experiences. But again, with these particular participants, they thought they were excluded again from par participating in PE. And many of them, even though they were Paralympic athletes while they were in high school, they didn't view themselves as athletes. So they're training on the side, but while they're in PE, they're not seeing that connection, that athletic identity. Um, they also got the feeling that uh, the exclusion that they experienced in PE was not because of the teacher, or because of the teacher's belief, but it was because of their disability. And imagine that as a child where you're thinking about how, why am I told to sit on the bleachers during my PE class? And you're internalizing that and you're thinking to yourself, this must be because of me, rather than being able to identify that perhaps it's the teacher's weakness as a teacher, or perhaps it's some other beliefs of your peers. And so we collected this data and we went through understanding basic embodied experiences within PE. And then we wanted to dive deeper in a number of different specific experiences within PE. And so the next series of studies that we started to collect were looking at specific items within PE that happened for kids without disabilities. Um, and we wanted to understand what it was like for persons with visual impairments. And so one thing that's common in PE is the construction of body image and how the body how the body is valued within the PE environment. And so we decided to talk to 10 adults with visual impairments to reflect back on construction of body image in PE. Um, and what we learned, which was surprising to us at the time, was that the participants placed a lot of value on how their bodies were looked at by other people within the PE setting. Um, and, and we were surprised at this because of the inherent, um, like the, the inherent reduced importance of like physical body image for persons who don't have um, vision. Um, and then we also learned that there was little instruction that helped shape a positive body image. Uh, and largely this was because of kids being excluded from different activities. And so because they were in PE, and this is a forum where body image is constructed, particularly positive body image can be constructed, um, when they were removed from the setting or told to sit on the side of the setting, they didn't have those opportunities to, um, to shape their, their body image in a positive way. Another aspect that we looked at was fitness testing. And now I'm sure that all of you who went through PE either have really fond or really terrible memories of fitness testing. Largely it's the pacer test that most people remember where they're sprinting back and forth to a timer. Um, and we talked to them specifically about fitness testing. Um, and it was, it was interesting to hear about part, uh, the, the peer gaze and the challenges that they had when um, they experienced unwanted peer gaze um, that, that deterred them from wanting to participate. And so there were several participants in this study who said that they asked to be removed from fitness testing activities um, because they didn't like the way in which their peers stared at them while they were participating. 
And so perhaps some of this had to do with the way in which they were participating in the activities. Um, perhaps some of it has to do with like the visual of seeing somebody who's blind or visually impaired sprinting and perhaps they're using different um, um, less traditional uh, running techniques. Um, and so because of that, people may have stared, our participants became uncomfortable with this and they asked to be removed. Um, finally, the, the final like more specific dive down into specific experiences in PE had to do with paraeducator support. Um, and I find paraeducator support to be an interesting concept because it's something that is kind of a taken for granted practice in PE where we believe that, or we, we talk about, I don't know what, if we believe in it, but we talk about the addition of a paraeducator um, to help kids with disabilities in PE quite often. And what we found conflicted a bit with what's typical in um, PE settings. And so unlike what we suggest, uh, the participants were, um, were less welcoming to close proximity paraeducator support. Um, and so they said when paras are close to them, when there's a second adult that's close to them, it elicited a lot of unwanted social attention and then inherit, and then as a result, social isolation. And so I remember one of the participants said that when there was a paraeducator or when there was a second adult by her um, in her class, she felt like a poppy in a, or a tree in a field full of poppies. And by that, she meant that she stuck out significantly. And then other peers didn't want to participate in activities with her because there was another adult there with her. Um, and so, so this has some practical implications with how to train paraeducators within the physical education environment. And I think this would translate well to other contexts or environments as well. Um, the students also said that they could tell pretty easily when paraeducators weren't trained or were po poorly trained for the PE environment, which I found to be quite interesting because I know in PE, we don't have very, um, very significant training for our paraeducators. And so um, as we're continuing to move down this body of research and we're continuing to explore our perspectives, we wanna expand our geographic locations. And so um, the next step for us was moving to different contexts geographically. And so the first context that we, we explored outside of um, the lower 48 was um, kids in Alaska, so Alaskan kids. And this included um, several um, native Alaskan youth, as well as uh, not native Alaskan youth. And there were actually two studies that we did up in Alaska, one of which focused specifically on PE experiences and the other on physical activity experiences. Um, and those experiences uh, were largely um, consistent with those that we were finding in the lower 48, which included some challenging social relationships and unmet needs by teachers. Um, this was also the first study that we did, um, our ODU research team that talked directly to children. Um, and we did so during a sport camp that I direct up in Alaska. Um, and so we have, we have, we have had um, really good access to this cohort of children and they had a lot of trust in us as, as researchers so, or as camp directors. So they were, they were willing to talk to us intimately about what their experiences were like. Um, then we've also done similar work in Brazil um, with kids with visual impairments. Um, these are a couple of colleagues I've worked with in Brazil. Um, I don't speak Portuguese, so um, a lot of the data were translated prior to me seeing any of it. So a lot of the nuance, the cultural nuance um, has been, uh, or I don't wanna say it's lost, but it's muddied when we're translating information to English from Portuguese or from some other languages that we've, uh, we've worked with in those countries. Um, but like in the United States, the kids in Brazil were largely excluded from activities. Um, and perhaps the most disappointing aspect of this study was that the participants said that they could tell that their PE teachers just flat out didn't want them in PE. Um, and again, like when we think about what it's like to be a child, and these were children saying this to uh, my co my co-author, um, when we think about what it's like to be a child and the feeling of not of adults not wanting us to be around. Um, it's a very profound feeling um, that can have significant implications later in life. Um, and so like students earlier where we were talking, or studies earlier where we were talking to adults who said that it defined them as a physically inactive person, um, I would predict that these children who were in PE, but they could tell that adults didn't think they belonged in PE, would likely 
experience those same declines in physical activity across the lifespan. Um, similarly, we worked with a group in Brazil or in Germany. Um, also very similar, um, very similar findings, very similar concepts, uh, similar results. Um, perhaps the thing that stuck out to me with this paper was um, that there were a lot of standards that were based on norms. So norms uh, like uh, tests, fitness tests or motor tests that were based on people without disabilities that they felt they couldn't live up to. And because of that, it reduced their beliefs about their own personal capabilities within the PE environment. And lastly, we also worked with South Korean athletes. And so we met uh, uh, visually impaired tennis players in South Korea. And these are, again, elite athletes. And um, I put this last because in this study, we had people who went to um, integrated settings and self-contained settings. So they had education in both of these contexts and very reflective of some of the work we had, we had done in the United States. We learned that poor student and teacher relationships emerged in the integrated setting and those feelings associated with inclusion were absent. However, they had excellent experiences within the self-contained setting. And these are the experiences that helped shape their athletic identity. So I know I'm probably, I'm probably gaining some fatigue with all the different studies we're talking about, um, but I'm gonna keep on pressing forward because I think that the, fine, this, the, the first three sections really set the stage for the last three sections or the last two sections of research that we focused on. And so the next section we started to think about and conceptualize was looking at different intersectional identities with disability or with visual impairment. And so for those of you not familiar with intersectionality, it, it uh, is a conceptual framework that looks at the way in which a variety of different identities influence um, experiences. And, and general, typically this is uh, marginal, marginalized identities, which I think disability falls uh, well within. And so the first study we did in this area, um, which was among the more interesting studies I can, I can remember was looking at um, how participants viewed their identity as a female and their identity as being somebody with a disability within a PE context and how those two identities intersected to influence their experience. And one of the more interesting findings that I remember from this particular study was that um, the women that we interviewed um, said that they leveraged their visual impairment as an excuse to sit out so that they could sit with other girls in their class who were also trying to sit out of PE. And so to me, this was kind of, this was an interesting twist on some of the information that we had previously had. Um, but rather than, so rather than having to come up with excuses to sit out, which according to these participants was commonplace within PE settings, especially during high school, especially during activities that they didn't enjoy. Um, they used their disability as the reason why they could request to sit out and, and therefore were sitting with other girls in the class and socializing. Um, they also, and, and this is reflective of the rest of the work that we've done, they thought that their teacher viewed their bodies as being flawed. And they talked about how their bodies were flaw flawed both because they were a female within the integrated PE context as well as uh, having a visual impairment and how that combination essentially let them um, leave all activities or disengage from all activities within the class. And so because we did the first study, we thought it was important for us to also continue along and look at maleness in, and visual impairment within PE to see what kind of differences might emerge from talking to males about a similar topic. Um, and, and for the men in the class, the hypermasculine culture in PE uh, was actually quite a deterrent for them. And so they wanted to engage in this hypermasculine um, competitive culture in PE, but they were discarded from classes by their PE teacher. And so while they really wanted to engage and, and be part of that culture, their disability uh, restricted that participation, which, which divided them from the other males within the class. Um, according to them. And so that's quite the discrepancy between the male and female experience within PE. Um, and then there was um, a lot of bullying that was described by the, by the students, some of which was because of their inability to participate, 
Um, some of it was attempts to engage in that hypermasculine sporting culture within PE um, without having the valued body um, within that setting. And then other students who were higher on the social hierarchy uh, would bully them. And then the final paper we did in this particular area thus far um, was looking at uh, identifying as somebody who is um, overweight or obese, and we allowed the participants to select um, how they were represented within the, uh, within the paper in regard to their weight status and having a visual impairment. And um, likely not a surprise at this point with everything else that I've gone through, a lot of bullying, teacher discrimination, and isolated participation. Um, the addition that this paper has to the literature was that the body image or the body weight was similarly impactful as the disability for a lot of the students. And so finally, where we have now gotten to is looking specifically at their views, uh, participants' views toward inclusion. Um, and so I'm going to take a little more time going through four papers that's, that uh, looked specifically at inclusion. And the first one was the one I mentioned earlier. Um, and this was called the Inclusion Illusion. It was part of uh, Nakahe's um, program a few years back. And this was a nonfiction narrative from a participant that I've, I've uh, interviewed for a number of different studies. And I asked them to sit down with me and provide longer narratives about some of his experiences. And so within this paper, it basically highlights Toby's experiences within PE with three different stories. And I thought I would share one of those stories with you all. Um, and so this one was called, even though they, the peers thought they were helpful, they weren't. And he says, most people that didn't know me tried to help me in a way that I look at now and I think was probably inappropriate. They saw me as, quote, the blind kid, even though I'm a visual traveler and a visual learner and I react and respond visually. For example, if we were playing basketball and I made a shot, they would say, good job, buddy. And I would, and I'm like, okay, thanks, screw you. If I was in physical education and there was somebody who didn't know me, they would either be very indifferent toward my performance or very overtly trying to help. My preference was indifference mostly because if it didn't draw attention to the fact that I had just messed up or that I was not as athletic as most of the people in the class, uh, which is definitely what I thought. I'm sure that they, the peers, can, couldn't even express why they were reacting the way that they were. I think that they just saw somebody struggling and they acted indifferently or they tried to help overtly. I don't even think they understood. They were probably like, Toby's blind. I'm sure they didn't even understand what my disability was. So I think it was probably mostly a misunderstanding. With that said, even though they thought they were helpful, they weren't. I didn't like it. It made me feel more incompetent than I already felt. Most of the time, if somebody started to help, I began to have a negative attitude toward that person. If you think, that, uh, if you think about that happening as an adult, if you do something and somebody says, oh, nice job, buddy, let me help you with that, you'd be like, and here's some more colorful language from Toby. Um, it's the same kind of feeling. I don't think that you can really understand something like this until you have an experience in which somebody doesn't. And so Toby's interview here and this paper here inspired a, a series of other studies where we really looked at inclusion and inclusiveness, again, as the conceptual framework while within integrated classes. And so this this paper came out, I believe, in 2020. Um, and so we, in this paper, we asked people directly, did you feel included? We no longer asked them only to tell us about their experiences, but we wanted them to interpret their own experiences through this idea of inclusion being a, a sense of belonging, acceptance, and value. And for the large part, participants talked about being integrated in the setting, but not included in the setting. So that sense of belonging, value, and acceptance was missing. Maybe the most interesting and maybe the most important finding that we've had in this series of studies was that even though the participants didn't feel included and largely were told to go sit on the sideline, they still wanted to be in the same class as their peers and they wanted that feeling of inclusion. And so to me, this is profound because I think it's easy to say, okay, people don't feel included in integrated PE, let's put them somewhere else. But what I believe the participants wanted and said was that today I don't feel included or I didn't feel included in PE. Let's figure it out. 
let's figure out how I can feel and gain those sen that sense of inclusion in this class. Um, here's a, 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 a one of the one of the uh, direct quotes from one of the participants about value. They said, "How does a teacher show value? The teacher shows value by using you as an example or demonstration. Also by using you as a team captain. A teacher shows value by taking a student and making them a positive example or a leader in the class." I saw them do this for other students, but I was never in that role. Can a teacher always do this? No, but it never happened in my experience. I was very aware that I was something they had to deal with because I had a visual impairment. And, and note, he said, I was something they had to deal with in this sentence, not someone. I was also, I was someone that they had to accommodate and you don't ever wanna feel like that. That's the opposite of feeling valued. And another more aggressive quote from one of the participants, a lot of times inclusion is fake. They, the schools, will be like, oh, we need to have disabled people. Let's include them so we look good. It's fake. It's overused and a lot of times it's fake. It's too forced. Schools do it for a look. They want to look diverse, but it has to be genuine. I don't know how it can be implemented. And it's a hard thing because everyone is different. And so clearly this person has had uh, uh, a number of experiences in settings that people were referring to as inclusive, but did not have that experience of being included. And so the next paper that we worked on was looking at this idea of access. And so we wanted to look deeper and understand if people want to be included within PE, what's stopping that feeling? And so there were literally, there were three uh, levels of exclusion that we found in, in this study. Um, that influenced the way in which people felt about being included. And so first was exclusion from a physical space. And so exclusion from a physical space included kids who were enrolled in integrated classes, but were essentially lifted and placed in other settings, maybe a gymnasium or a, a weight room, maybe an equipment closet, which was uh, interesting to talk to the participant about. Some people were told to go outside, so they weren't in the physical space with the rest of the kids. And so this is one of the quotes It said, a lot of times I was in a separate room and I would have another kid just there with me and they, the teachers leave us there, leave us to do whatever we wanted because they didn't want to mess with me. Imagine that feeling as a child where you're told to go to a different setting because the teacher doesn't want to mess with you. Um, and then the second level of, of exclusion that we found was that there were uh, persons who reported being excluded uh, allowed within the physical space, but not allowed in the activity. So largely these students were uh, put to the side in the gymnasium, put on the bleachers. And so this quote reads, it wasn't really, it really wasn't inclusive. The teacher would be like, well, this is what we're doing. I don't know what else you can do. So go hang out over wherever until we're done. And then finally, there were participants who said that they gained access to the physical space and gained access to activities. However, they didn't gain access to meaningful participation within those activities. And so these participants were participating in perhaps softball, but they would play, they would participate in relatively meaningless roles within those sports, perhaps being in left field, the ball never comes to them, they're just existing within the game. Um, so one of the last quotes from this particular study said, it PE made me feel even more uh, alienated. It made me feel worse about this disease or condition that I had no control over. PE made me feel worse about it because nobody wanted to be around me in a sense. And so the last study I'm gonna bring up to you all today um, was our attempt at looking at inclusion in a self-contained setting. And we did this down in Louisiana. We went into schools um, and we talked specifically to kids with a variety of different disabilities about what it was like being in, um, in a self-contained adapted PE class and what it was and whether they felt those feelings of acceptance, belonging, and value within those classes. And, and one of the ways that we did so is when we talked to the students, we also asked them to draw pictures of themselves within those classes. Um, and so this picture, for example, depicts Edward's positive experience playing basketball in a self-contained class. And you can see, you know, Edward is the green student and all the students are smiling while they're playing basketball together. Um, here's another one where John's enjoyment is reflected in the smile that he's drawing while he's doing jumping jacks within PE. 
And so with this paper, one of the notes that we had was that it was important that we as scholars start to look beyond just integrated settings as the place where feelings of inclusion may be available. And perhaps we don't blindly assume self-contained settings cannot be inclusive, just like how we cannot blindly assume that integrated settings are inclusive. And so when we look across these studies, there's a few important consistent findings that I'm sure that after listening to me uh, for 20 minutes talk about this series of research, most of you will probably identify as well. Um, but largely the first one says that students with disabilities, while they may be integrated into the same context as their peers without disabilities, their subjective experiences of belonging, acceptance, and value inherent to the inclusive education experience may be unavailable. And so it is reasonable to suggest that in, the, in, in this setting, policies and practices intended to promote inclusion may, at the individual level, for, uh, create forms of exclusion. Um, and then I, I suppose it's a bit ironic, but experiences in these environments that are largely considered exclusive, such as self-contained PE, may elicit feelings that are more associated with philosophies of inclusion. And so moving forward, first I'll tell you a bit about moving forward for us as a research team here at ODU. Uh, the thing we're working on, the project we're working on now is we are currently recruiting for a year-long project where we're talking to youth with visual impairments over a 12-month period, and we're going to talk to them via uh, monthly um, written prompts and uh, biannual interviews and diaries and such, so we can have a prolonged look at what their year is like um, as youth with visual impairments in integrated PE context. And this is supported by a grant through the Spencer Foundation. Um, we're also expanding to individuals with a variety of different disabilities or health conditions or intersectional identities. And so um, we've began, um, and these papers are currently in review, um, exploring inclusion from the perspective of uh, youth with autism. Um, and one of our doctoral students here, which I think is doing really interesting work, is um, exploring um, how inclusion is experienced from the perspective of uh, kids with physical disabilities. Um, and she is also asking them specifically about these taken for granted strategies that we use and claim are inclusive and whether or not they elicit feelings of inclusion. And then our other doctoral student that we work with here is looking at um, the intersection of uh, transgender, transgender identities with disability identities and how those two identities inform um, experiences within physical education contexts. And lastly, we're expanding to different contexts. We're doing more work with schools for the blind. Uh, we're also doing work with uh, a diabetes camp here in the area um, to look at how kids with diabetes feel about engaging within that camp as well as engaging within PE contexts. And so we are constantly looking at various different settings and using different methodologies to continue to pursue these ideas. Um, here are a couple of examples of other studies that we've done in Brazil and then here in Hampton Roads. And then I think there are really important um, implications per pra for practice that emerge from this research. Um, and so I think the most important statements are first that inclusion isn't a placement. And so when we decide or when we associate inclusion with a placement, we're basically saying that it's good enough for us to put kids together. And it's not good enough just to put people together. We need to also care about how they feel. And so that's led me to this statement that I've been saying quite often um, in the last few weeks, which is we must place feelings of being included above feeling like we are including. And so rather than caring ourselves about um, how we feel about as practitioners that we think we're doing a great job because we're including people, Rather, I think it's more important for us to think about the people who are being included and how they feel about that, those specific uh, contexts or experiences. So it's a philosophical shift that I'm hoping to promote. Um, I have other food for thought uh, for uh, based on this research. Um, and again, like rather than assuming that integrated settings are inherently inclusive, I believe that we must engage students with disabilities about their own experiences within those settings. Um, and I think this, this goes all the way down to the teachers, 
who should be encouraged to discuss experiences directly with students to help support these inclusive experiences. Um, and tonight in the, in the community session, we're gonna talk more and reflect more about how to talk specifically with students with disabilities about their experiences. Um, I also don't think we should dismiss any particular setting as either, either the integrated or the self-contained settings as not being able to provide inclusive experiences especially since inclusion is conceptualized as a subjective experience, we can apply this concept to just about any setting out there. Um, I think we must also dispel the common belief that inclusion can be achieved by implementing strategies without ongoing input. And so, you know, our field and many fields have a proliferation of um, inclusive strategies that are recommended uh, by, you know, either, you know, uh, seasoned teachers or academics. And I think by dispelling the belief that these work, we can then be more critical and reflective about the practices that we use. And so some overarching summarizing statements. Um, it is reasonable to suggest that the policies and practices intended promote, to promote inclusion in education may, again, create forms of exclusion. And to improve these educational experiences, scholars have the moral responsibility to question and problematize concerns related to the inclusiveness of integrated and non-integrated educational contexts. And within my field, um, I've been working toward um, encouraging more younger scholars to problematize different things within our field, taken for granted common sense practices that we use to understand whether they should be taken to granted common sense practices. What's the point of us in academia if we're not gonna problematize? And so finally, um, and this is one of my favorite pictures um, on the internet, um, I don't want to, I, I, I get a reputation from these types of talks about being one to say, we should discontinue integrated education. And, and I don't think that's true. Um, I don't think we should remove people from integration uh, or integrated settings without first discussing where students want to be educated. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a, a challenge in that I don't think that happens often enough. I don't think students have a say often enough. Um, I also don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater by dismissing inclusion as an educational uh, philosophy or a possibility. Rather, Again, and this just goes with what I've been saying for the last few slides, I think we have to abandon the inherent belief that inclusion is successful, problematize issues related to the inclusiveness of education, and develop an understanding of how to enhance uh, inclusive experiences within a variety of different educational contexts. And so I, that's the content I have. I think we have a few minutes for questions. I also wanted to leave up my contact information um, so that anybody who might have interest in connecting um, about this content can, can message me. And I also keep Twitter up here because I'm told by my department to try to use Twitter.